This morning we continue our study in the uh, outline and uh, ethos of leadership. Uh, been trying to, to hit from narrative texts, uh, both in the Gospels and in um, the uh, Old Testament, uh, the, both the challenge and opportunity of leadership as it is both positively and negatively portrayed at its best and worst moments uh, throughout Scripture. And uh, the idea, of course, is to reinforce the fullness that what Paul's talking about in a list of do's and don'ts and qualities has a certain history and expectation. Paul, of course, does not uh, come out of thin air with uh, what are some characteristics that would be nice for leadership. But he draws on the richness of his history, the richness of Scripture, and the richness of having come in contact with the risen Jesus. Not just on the road to uh, from uh, Jerusalem to Damascus, but also uh, in that time of study when he was in, uh, in the desert and uh, withdrew to basically go through all of Scripture again and figure out what the implications were as led by the Holy Spirit uh, for the resurrection and the power of who Jesus was. And so as Paul comes later on to instruct Timothy and Titus about those characteristics it is with the full weight of biblical history, the full weight of the ethos and the regular uh, routines, both the dangers and the, uh, the opportunities for biblical leadership. Uh, this morning, we're going to uh, continue in uh, utilizing the imagery and the reality of uh, the transfiguration. We read the gospel reading this morning that reminded us of the story of Jesus' transformation before, or transfiguration before his uh, trial, before his uh, week of uh, Passion Week, and before his crucifixion and resurrection. And uh, there is this reality and theme that, uh, that Christ being the first part of new creation, being the first uh, among the risen, and being God himself, that sets both the expectation and the resources for any hopes of leadership in God's community of faith. And so this morning what I want to do is read the passage from 2 Peter, verses 16 through 21, and then we're going to, uh, again, reflect on this idea of leadership within the body of Christ, its character and its nature. For we did not follow clever devices and myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus the King. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and that voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice, born from heaven. We were with him on the holy mountain. We have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will uh, do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in dark places until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of a man, 
but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we we do desire to know even more fully what it means to be your children, uh, to be more and more like our big brother, and to rely on the Holy Spirit as he clearly did in his incarnation, as he does even now, in that perfect unity of relationship within the Trinity. We pray, Lord, that we would again delight in the promise and the hope of new creation, what it means to be transformed into your image. But Lord, if there is anything that's said that is untrue or unhelpful to your people, may those words quickly be forgotten. In Christ's name, amen. So it's, uh, it's hyperbole, but it's also sometimes true. When something major happens, uh, it's, it's not uncommon for us to say everything changes because of this. Everything changes. Uh, Whether it is a traumatic event like 9-11, which did have uh, several significant implications on our society and culture. We're now pushing 20 years uh, of a war. Uh, That's changed the way we have a mindset as a people. We are constantly on alert and uh, in war mode in relationship uh, to possible uh, terrorist attacks on our soil and in places where uh, our people are represented. Uh, it, it manifested some, unconcern, uh, some, some concerning things about you know, that challenge of what happens in fear and the use uh, of torture and abuse to uh, ends justify the means. Things changed in a way that, well, it changed everything about who we thought we were and who we wanted to be and how we could keep what was ours. But it's not just traumatic negative events uh, like that that change a culture, but the positive things technologically or medically or the fact that some of those technological and and medical changes are a combination of good and bad, right? They can be used for good, but sometimes we find all of a sudden that they're bad. And so all of the brilliance of connectivity that can allow doctors to give real-time counsel, for example, to somebody who's in a camp in the far-flung areas of the world giving relief to refugees and can give real-time consultation can also just, well, allow me to spend a lot of time figuring out what the guy's second cousin's third wife is doing on Facebook. Because it's just kind of interesting because you track one person and then you're friends with somebody else and then you're friends and you find my stars. How many hours have gotten away? Some of that is good. Some of it, probably time that I could redeem. Medical technology, we know the pros and cons of the blessing of modern medicine. It doesn't matter whether there's uh, cheap and easy access to that medical technology, there's still what do we do with our ability to understand the human genome and how to play with it? Or what we can do possibly in vitro with children on the good side, maybe correcting things that would have been uh, lifelong injuries, lifelong uh, genetic Uh, implications of the fall that would rob somebody of certain mental functions or certain physical functions. But if we can remove those negatives, maybe we can tune the engine a little bit. Maybe we can increase intelligence. And we, so we recognize that even as things radically change, there can be positives and negatives to it. For Peter, everything changed with the resurrection. And his first taste of that, the first promise that everything was going to be remade and reconstituted, 
renewed and recreated, happened on that mountain when he saw the glorified Lord standing with Moses, with Elijah, a precursor to the glorified resurrected body and how it shone and the power that it had. And it tempted, of course, Peter to want to worship and set up tents and never leave. This changes everything. We're all going to live on a mountain. At the very least, we can sell tickets and make a fortune. And Jesus, of course, doesn't allow them to stay there. It is a revelation of what is to come, but the role is to move out and on into a world that needs so much to be restored and renewed. God comes to transform his creation, and all of the sudden, for Peter and for Paul and the rest of the disciples, everything changes. It changes the way they read all of the Old Testament laws. They don't discard them, but now they see that both there was death, but now in Christ there can be life. That the law can set us free, not by earning it, but because Christ has saved us, we can now see the goodness of what it is to live as Christ lived. To love others as we are called to love. To be generous and open-handed. To be gracious and forgiving. To know what it is to live out of the power of Christ, not out of the fear of loss. And law was always meant to protect us from our own fears. What happens when I want what I want and I think you have it? My worst moments are, I'll take it from you. In my less worst moments, I'll just... Think badly of you for having those things that I wish I had. The law always warned us that that was death. To love something more than God. To set up things to look at that weren't transforming our hearts but were dead and mute. All of that robbed us of our humanity. And yet, throughout the Old Testament, there doesn't seem to be a way, and you've heard me say this before, to stop death. One of the things you should get by the time you get to the Old Testament is how on earth is life going to happen? God has done so much, and yet death keeps winning. God gives them a land. They leave him. God does this. God gives them manna. I went backwards and forwards. I'm a little you know, all over the map historically. But you know what I'm talking about when you read through the Old Testament. You're like, my stars. What does God have to do? For us to be faithful, to fall in love with Him, to not see Him as a means to our end. How is this pattern going to be broken? Because death and sin. For Pete's sakes, we can't walk down the street without becoming unclean, so I can't go to the temple. I have to do some ritual to get clean. Death and decay are everywhere, and I am regularly unclean. How will this be fixed? With new creation. And it was all a promise, and it was all hopeful, but it was all easily understood as a normal sort of just another prophet until the hint of the transfiguration and the fulfillment and the realization that now there was new flesh at the resurrection. That is the fulcrum of history. That is when everything changed. Yes, Is sin still present, but there is power to war against it. And it is actually in some places being moved against. And it is, life is growing. There are more believers now than there have ever been. God is building his kingdom. Is it a straight line? Is it a utopia? Heavens no. But everything changed 2,000 years ago. And we need leadership 
that embraces that. Paul is, sorry, Peter, it's, it's the New Testament. You're either talking about Jesus or Paul, right? Did anybody else write anything in the Old Testament? No. So Peter, Peter is writing this epistle, and he says, you have a bunch of teachers coming in. The context of, of 2 Peter is people are twisting the gospel. We're not exactly sure which way. In fact, scholars literally have written, this is uh, Gnostic, which is he's fighting against people who have a platonic dualistic view that the best thing we can do is get out of here into the spiritual world. The material world is bad, spiritual world is good. And then another scholar will write an equally passionate paper about the fact that these people were Epicureans, which means they only believe in matter and there is no spiritual world. So there's certain ways in which Peter's writing doesn't give us a hint exactly what he's arguing against, except the fact that both of those perversions are regularly present. We can either become pragmatic like the Epicureans. This is all there is. We need to be fun. We need, we need pragmatic leadership. We need leadership that can keep the doors open, the lights on, the carpet clean. We need institutional clear thinking to keep the church well grounded. We need pragmatism. Or we can live so Gnostic that we all end up living on poles in the desert, waiting for a spiritual experience apart from God and being terrified of women who will lead us into sin. Now that's an over-exaggeration about the desert fathers, but there was a way in which as they adopted a more and more fearful negative view of the material world, the further and further they got away from engaging in the fullness of creation and life. And so Peter here is, as we talk about uh, what leadership does, confronting that brokenness, confronting that false theology. But how does he confront it? He confronts it with a recitation of the comfort of who God is. A God, he says in chapter 1, verse 8, uh, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with... Ver oh, wait, did I skip one verse? No, there it is. Sorry, sorry, four. Uh, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you might become partakers of the divine nature. The promise that we get to participate yet again as image bearers. The comfort of knowing that, yes, it's going to be counterintuitive. To the world, it will seem like foolishness. But new creation has started. Jesus was transformed. I saw him. He told me not to talk about it until the resurrection because, quite frankly, I didn't understand what I saw on that mountain until I met him raised. And he walked me along the Sea of Galilee and, as we looked at last week, talked with me and talked with me about the ministry and said, Peter, do you love me? I said, I do, Lord. He said, then feed my sheep. And here is Peter now, several decades later, faithfully feeding the sheep that Jesus loves. Because he saw the resurrected Christ. Because now the transfiguration made sense as a promise of what it would look like and be like to have recreation, new creation, come in the midst of history. The world to be transformed with the expectation that death and decay will not have the final end. And in fact, in Jesus, we now participate yet again in the divine nature. Small g gods, as the psalmist said, we have the power, power to bring good and life and light that will last through eternity because nothing good will be lost. 
The only things that will be removed by the fire is sin and death and the consequences of sin and death. All that is good, all that is new creation, all that is created and done in Christ will never be destroyed. It endures. Peter gives them that hope, reassuring them earlier in chapter 1 about the reason for virtue and value and to live out. And if you read verses 5 through 9, you get basically an outline of what Paul has said elsewhere about the character of leadership. But the only way we can truly live, now I'm going to go through this list that, that Peter says, but think about this. The only way this actually works is if we're new creations. Because if you and I try and be this good, if we try and be this virtuous, it always comes out wrong one way or another. It's how we know whether we're trying to do it in our own flesh or whether we're increasingly dependent upon the Spirit, recognizing we are new creations, not old creations trying to tweak what was bad, but new creations in Christ. So Peter says uh, in verse uh, 5, uh, for this reason, now that we're getting to this text, uh, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. Isn't that an interesting progression? You can have familial affection, but all. Oh, Oh, when it's love, that self-giving agape love, that is even a deeper and richer thing that comes from the Lord. This is a high standard for any of us to live, let alone our elders, our deacons, and our leaders and disciples. It only comes with that assurance that it's not out of a self-perfected human nature but out of the application of the divine nature given to us because God started recreating the world in the resurrection of His Son. So as we embody this reality, it fills, it fills a call. This is too much to be contained Within these walls, Peter had to be kind of occasionally taken uh, with a bit of a firm hand uh, into the Gentile world to understand the implications. Uh, yet, nonetheless, Peter went. Right? I think most of us can probably identify with Peter's learning curve better than we can identify with Paul's. We don't want to be Paul in the early years because Paul was fairly zealous and, and that worked out poorly uh, for many people and Paul. But when he got it, it doesn't seem like Paul had a whole lot of question in his mind. But Peter, Peter makes great confessions and great blunders within moments uh, of doing one or the other. There is a, there is a reality that Peter uh, is somebody I can identify with in my own spiritual life. And there is, in the midst of that, the call not to go out as perfect leaders, not to go out as those who fix themselves, not as those who can put on an image of having it together, but as Peter, those who are being transformed, those who are participating in the divine nature and know that their position and their calling to serve and love and whatever authority there is to, to comfort 
and to confront comes from the grace of God. From those virtues that come through the Holy Spirit as Paul, I can't do it, Peter wraps up this section we read. What does he say? For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of a man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The way in which we believe that each member of our congregation and each one called to leadership has the words to say, the power to speak, the willingness to repent, and the capacity to love is that they are being led by and leaning on the presence of the Holy Spirit. That is harder to fake. It's harder to uh, carry because it is so much beyond our capacity. We either have to lower the standard of what love and compassion, generosity and repentance looks like to make it humanly possible. Or we continue to have this expanded notion that everything changed. For Peter, for the first 12, and for every follower since. When that transfigured picture that we read about this morning becomes the resurrected Christ. Bright, perfect, new creation itself, bringing light into dark places. Relying upon the Spirit as Jesus did in his entire ministry and as he encourages us to today. Again, this is never a call for perfect leadership. It is a call for dependent leadership. But dependent leadership that understands that new creation is a reality. It's the hope we have to give Jesus to another in love and care. Why? Because new creation has started. We have hope this side of glory. Because new creation has started. The light is dawn. And we have the privilege, leader and laity, of participating in that divine nature and that divine call by the strength of the Spirit. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that leadership is not about our power. It's not about our perfection. It's sometimes not about our diligence in staying close to you. Thankfully, you are the hound of heaven. You pursued Peter. You pursued Paul. You kept them all close, even when their fears, the distractions and the waves would lead them away. We pray, Lord Jesus, that you would, in each one's life here, through the shared common faith, through the power of the Spirit, that we might build each other up in the sure knowledge of recreation, new creation, the hope that the world has changed because you sit at the right hand of the Father. We ask that we would take that confidence into our marriages, into our friendships, into our parenting, into the world. In Jesus' name, amen.